Welcome to this episode of the Beartown Road Alliance Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Isaac, and today we are continuing on with our series, We Are Family. Uh, we also actually celebrated baptisms during this particular service, and so it was a really, really extraordinary morning. And so in this episode, We Are Family, we're talking about what do we believe as a church, and we're talking specifically about Jesus and the fact that he was a man, but he was also God, and the type of trouble that that got him into, but the reason that it's so important to us in our walk of faith. And so if you would like to know anything that's going on at the church throughout the fall leading up to the holiday season, you can go to beartownroad.org slash events. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode titled, When Did Jesus Become Divine? Yes, uh, it was great to leave the building. It is good to be back in the building this morning worshiping the Lord with you. But I do want to say a huge thank you to the trio, the three musketeers who really made Church Leave the Building possible. This is, <laughs> this is Tracy, Sarah, and Courtney who worked for like three or four months to be able to pull that off, 28 projects, over 350 people. It was, it was extraordinary. So thank you to the three of you. And yeah, and... Uh, I know there were several of you that did quite a bit of organizing and purchasing, and and it was just an extraordinary effort. So thank you for that. We are in a series called We Are Family. Let's try that again. We Are Family. It's been a few weeks since we've done that. And in this series, we're talking about this is what we do and this is what we believe, or this is what we practice and this is what we believe. So we are a church uh, of small groups. We are a church that serves one another on a ministry team. We are a church that prays for healing. We are a church that believes and supports global missions. And we are a church that does local outreach, as we did last week. And uh, two weeks ago, today, and then in a couple more weeks, we're going to talk about what we believe. Two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that we believe that the Old and New Testaments are, in fact, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that they are reliable. And today, we're going to talk about this one profound, amazing truth that is Jesus Christ is the true God and true man. He is the true God and the true man. And I want to try to answer two questions for us. Number one, was Jesus in fact divine? And if the answer to that is yes, then why is Jesus's divinity important? So was Jesus divine? And why is that important, or why is it necessary to believe that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh? Now, if there's anybody that we should ask this question to who could give us an accurate answer, it would be one of Jesus's very best friends, uh, the Apostle John, who referred to himself as the beloved disciple. And John, probably about you know, maybe 30, 40, 50 years after the resurrection of Christ, decided to sit down with pen and parchment in hand and write down the biography of Jesus or write down all of the experiences that he had with Jesus. He was by far out of the four biographers of Jesus, the most theological. He was the one that really wanted to get across the message that Jesus is in fact divine, that he is God in the flesh. But he had a little bit of a problem on his hands. He knew that he lived with two distinct worldviews. He lived with the Jewish worldview that believed that um, worshiping a crucified man was blasphemy, right? It was actually blasphemy 
to say that a man was God, let alone a crucified man, was God. And as one author states, it was about as kosher as pork sausages wrapped in bacon served to Jews for a jihad fundraiser. Right? So here he is thinking to himself, okay, I want to write a biography of Jesus, but I've got Jews that are going to have a hard time believing in this. And he's also thinking of the Greeks who he wants to reach. And one author said this, that except for Seneca, all of the ancient Greek and Roman writers insisted on the absolute separation of divinity, leaving man in his misery without Remedy. In other words, if you're a Greek person, God cannot become human, and a human cannot become God. So here's John sort of with, you know, the Jewish mindset over here and the, the Greek mindset, and he's trying to communicate to them the truth about who Jesus is. And I just imagine that as he's sitting there thinking about how he's going to explain this, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he thinks back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, which was written to the Hebrew people. It was part of their Jewish text. And he's probably got it right in front of him, or at least he's got it memorized, right? And here's how it goes. It's the very beginning of the scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So at the very beginning of Genesis, we've got God, who is the Father and the Spirit. Okay, so we've got two persons, the Father and the Spirit, and it is completely dark. Okay, it's like formless and void and dark. Anybody nervous right now? Like maybe the electricity just went off. Anyone a little scared right now, right? So God's looking at this, this creation and it is dark, and then God says, let there be light, and there was light. <laughs> so here's John, right? He's got this in his mind as he's writing. Again, Jewish audience, Greek audience, and he pulls out his pen, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's how he starts his biography of Jesus or his gospel of Jesus. He says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, so far, he hasn't offended anybody. This, this word, word, is the Greek word logos, which is a very dynamic word. It's a sophisticated word. In the Greek, it's, it's got all kinds of different meaning in the, meanings. In the same way as in English, the word word has lots of different meanings. To quote real-life English, word is a dynamic in a colorful word. We use the word word all the time, right? Let me just give you a few examples. How many of you, when you walked in this morning, the welcome team went up to you and said, word up, dog? <laughs> or, or like your kid got an A on their test and you were like, word. Maybe that was like the 1980s, right? When we used to say that sort of thing. Or how about this? Give me your word. Hey, word on the street. Just say the word, and I'll be there. In other words, hey, can I have a word with you? Don't put words into my mouth. Preach the word. I am at a loss for words. Hey, in your own words, oh my 
word, right? And kind of goes on and on. We use the word word in all kinds of different ways. Well, again, in the Greek, um, this word is a bit sophisticated. So I'm going to need you to put your thinking cap on right now as I try to tease out what the word logos means, right? The word, uh, word is the Greek word logos. It's a very common Greek word. It's used 329 times in the New Testament, and it's translated word, saying, statement, speech, or message. This word logos um, was used by a Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus, um, who used the word logos around 600 BC. So this is a very old word. It's been around for 600 years prior to John's writing. And it means this. It is the divine reason or plan which coordinates a changing universe, right? It's the reason or it's the plan or it's the design to coordinate a changing universe. We use the term sometimes, hey, this is part of God's plan. This is part of God's logos. It's the, the again, the word that sort of coordinates this changing universe. Now, the word word, which is the word logos, um, there's a word that comes from it called logikos, which means reasonable. It's where we get our word logic, the English word logic, which simply means reason, right? So if you've grown up, uh, if you're a parent right now of like a two-year-old or a three-year-old, and one day you catch them taking Sharpies and writing all over the wall, I don't have any experience with this, but I've heard that sometimes they get into stuff and you look at the wall and you're like, okay, can you please give me the logikos behind this amazing piece of art, right? Can you give me the reason or the logic behind why you do what you do. Or tomorrow you're going to go out in the parking lot and you're going to see all these different trunks. And some of you are going to go up to a trunk and you're going to be like, that is really cool looking, but I have no idea what it means. Can you please explain the logic? Can you please explain the logikos behind your piece of creation? So the logos is, it's the reason, it's the plan, it's the foundation upon the coordination of the universe, right? So he, here's, what, here's what John's saying. In the beginning was the logos, the plan, the, the reasoning, and the word was with God. Now, so far, he has not offended anybody because the Jews are thinking to themselves, okay, Psalm 33, 6 says, and the word of the Lord created. So the, the Jews are cool with this so far, and the Greeks are thinking, well, yeah, I'm, that, that's fine. I mean, the logos is kind of an impersonal being, right? The gods, whoever they are up there, there's this one God that they believe created the heavens and the earth by his word. There's all kinds of different gods. So you, you haven't really offended anybody, and now John is about to drop the bomb. He is about to say something that is so utterly offensive to the Jews as well as the Greeks, but he believes that this is really true. He's experienced this in his life, that the word, the logos, literally has changed his life. And so he says this, and this is huge. The word was God. The logos was God. And it's not just a reason. It's not just an idea. It's a he. He was with God in the very beginning. So John's like, hey, hey, hey. You, you know, all you Hebrews who are familiar with Genesis chapter 1, right, in the beginning, God created, there was God the Father, there was the Spirit who hovered over the waters of creation. Well, I want to tell you about somebody else who was there, 
who isn't specifically mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, but now I'm telling you about the logos. I'm telling you about the fact that Jesus, the Word of God, has always been there. He has always existed. He wasn't created during a specific time in history. He has always been, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. One translation says the darkness has not overcome it. He came to bring light. He came to shine the light in the darkness. And then if we fast forward to uh, verse 14, he says this, and this is huge. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This word dwelling, it, it literally means to fix one's tabernacle or to set up a tent, right? He, he literally left the throne of heaven to tabernacle among us. We have seen, John says, his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. He came to speak truth to bring light so that you can see your sin, and then he took it away. Now, I bet you didn't know this, but John chapter 1, verse 14 was the very first tweet, because when Twitter was invented in 2006, 2006 you could only write a tweet that was 140 characters, and John chapter 1, verse 14 is literally 140 characters in the original Greek. If that ain't Bible prophecy, I don't know what is, right? He was ahead of his time. He says this, the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. And to the Jews, that's blasphemy. And to the Greeks, that just, that doesn't make any sense. Paul would say it's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Greeks. But John says, but we saw him with our own eyes. We saw the glory of God made manifest in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So John believed that he was God in the flesh. The apostle Paul would write this. He is the image of the invisible God, and all things were created by him and for him. He was there at creation when he created it. It was created by him and for him. You were created in the image of God, by God, for the glory of God. By God that you might represent the greatness of God. You are an image bearer and you are a reflector and you are called to put on display the greatness of your God. He's the image of the, of the invisible God. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the logos. He is the reason. He holds everything together. He is the author and the sustainer and the savior of the universe. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus said in John, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to see what God looks like, if you want to see what God sounds like, if you want to see what God looks like when he walks and talks and speaks, look no further than Jesus. He is the image. He is the perfect representation of God the Father. So John believed that, and he talked about it all the time in his gospel. The apostle Paul believed that. And Mark 
and Luke and Matthew also believed that. I'm going to tell you this, this incredible story. One day, Jesus is in a house, and people hear that he's in this house, and he's teaching, and a bunch of people show up. You've got people hanging outside the windows. You've got people packed into the house, and there is no air conditioning, and it's getting funky inside. But Jesus is teaching, right? And he's like, wow, there's like, wow, wow. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, as Jesus is teaching, the, the mud starts to fall from the ceiling, and he starts to get straw all over him. And he looks up, and there is a group of people about to lower a man from a mat through the roof, right? And he, he's starting to make his way down, and, and here's the way Mark describes it. He says, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the logos to them. Right? He's preaching the message of God to them. Little did they know that the word of God was not only being preached, but the word of God was in their midst, that the God of the universe was in their midst. And when, when Jesus sees the faith of these friends who have this man on the mat, Jesus says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And there's a bunch of Pharisees or religious leaders that are hanging out, and maybe they're like on a in the window, and they're like, oh, he didn't just say that. Oh, he, oh no, Jesus didn't go there. Right? Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming, right? Because, again, God in the flesh, like, who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? So you got all these religious leaders, and they're just mad. And their faces are looking all angry, and they're like, how can, you, how can you talk like that? You're doing what only God can do. The only way you can get your sins forgiven is to bring a little animal to the priest who slaughters it, the blood is spilled, and then on behalf of God, the priest exclaims, you're forgiven by God, and yet Jesus, who do you think you are forgiving this man? And Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking because he can see it on their face. And he says this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, you take your mat, and you go home. Now, what's this, what's this Son of Man all about? I thought we were talking about Jesus as the Son of God. Why is he talking about the Son of Man? Well, Interestingly, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man 88 times in the Gospels. It is by far the phrase or the title that Jesus uses of himself most, the Son of Man. And it means to be truly human, like he is human, right? Whereas the first Adam failed in the garden, Jesus is the new Adam who had victory, right? The original creation became broken. Jesus came to give us new creation. So he is the son of man. He is truly human. He is the son of man. And I think that there were probably some Jews in that house that day who saw this paralytic get up and walk. And many of them were probably thinking to themselves, I know what Jesus means by son of man. That not only is he truly human, but I think he's referring to himself as divine. Because many Jews were familiar with Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Daniel was the prophet of Israel, one of their heroes 
who was exiled to Babylon and then was thrown into the lion's den and God miraculously saved him literally from the jaws of defeat. And right after that happens, he eventually has a vision, Daniel does, and here's how he describes it. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. So this is the son of man. Again, he's fully, he's, he's human, fully human, perfectly human. But now Daniel describes him as divine by saying he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. And you can't worship just a man. Only the divine is worthy of worship. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never, ever be destroyed. And so in that room on that day when Jesus heals the paralytic, he's saying, yes, I am the son of man, but there's also, there's also some meaning that he is, in fact, the son of God. And just in case you're not clear, just in case... There's a little bit of, you know, ambiguity when it comes to the Son of Man, you know, being the Son of God. Jesus makes it abundantly clear in the next example I want to show you. So, Jesus gets arrested in Gethsemane, and he gets taken to the high priest, the Sanhedrin. Seventy religious leaders are gathered together, and they're like, we got to get Jesus because they're thinking to themselves, we're jealous of him, and we got to get him. So they invite all these people to come, and all these people give false testimony. They start telling stories about Jesus, but their stories don't match up. And Caiaphas, the high priest, is thinking to himself, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, we might not be able to get Jesus because nobody can come up with a coherent message as to why he deserves to die. So Caiaphas decides to go for the jugular. Caiaphas decides to pull out the trump, kill, the trump card. And in this moment where Jesus is enchained, he's already been beat up by the mob of the religious leaders as they arrest him and bring him before the high priest. And so the high priest decides to go to the jugular and he looks at Jesus. And this is his last chance to get him where he wants him. And he says to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? In other words, Are you the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God? And Caiaphas is a little bit nervous, and he's like, come on, Jesus, you can say it, you can say it. And Jesus knows in this moment, his fate has been sealed. And he says, I am, which is a divine statement, I am. Just like when Moses met with God at the burning bush and God said, I am. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Caiaphas gets this look of anger, right? And he tears his robe. And even though on the outside he looks really mad, on the inside he's like, yes, I got him. We don't need any other testimonies. You heard him. And he rips his clothes and he says, you have heard this blasphemy that he has claimed to be God. And they strike him in the face and they spit in his face. And if it weren't for the Romans, they would have stoned him on the spot. 
but instead they decide to hand them over to the Romans who have their own version of stoning, also called crucifixion. And they crucify Jesus under the pretense that this man has claimed to be God in the flesh. So John believed Jesus was divine. Mark and Matthew and Luke and Paul all believed that Jesus was divine. The question I want to kind of end this with is, is simply this. Why does this matter? I mean, why, why are we talking about this? Like Christmas isn't for 56 more days, right? Now you're all a little bit more stressed, aren't you? You're like, oh, great, I was feeling this. Now I'm like, gee, Christmas is in 56 days. We talk about this during Christmas. Why are we talking about this right now? Why, why is Jesus' divinity important? Why does this matter, right? I mean, y'all, like you're in high school. Why, do you, why does this matter? You got things you got to worry about in high school, or you got kids that you're raising, or you got issues at work. Why does it matter that Jesus was divine? Couldn't he have just been a really, really good man or a prophet who spoke the accurate words that, you know, why does it matter that he was divine? There's three reasons. Number one is because he's the perfect prophet, perfect logic. And when your life is a mess, and when you're asking why is God allowing this and that to happen, you can rest in the fact that he's got perfect logic that he is perfectly divine, that he speaks the very words of God, that he is the exact representation of the Father, and that he cares about you and he wants to speak into your life. He's the perfect prophet. Secondly, he's the perfect sacrifice. He is the great high priest who laid down his life and spilled his blood that we might be forgiven of our sin. He's the perfect priest. And lastly, he's the perfect Lord. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when Jesus got up on the mountain after his resurrection, he looked at his guys and he said that very, very powerful statement. He said, all authority, not some authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which we are about to do in just a few minutes. Jesus is the only one who fulfilled all three of the offices as described in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, king. He is the perfect logos. He is the perfect message who delivered the words of God and embodied God in the flesh. He's the perfect sacrifice who laid down his life that we might be forgiven. And he is the Lord of all. And as Paul said, You're not your own anymore. You were bought at a price. So honor God with your body because he's worthy to be worshipped because he's not just a man, though he is the perfect human, but he is God in the flesh. And he has tabernacled among us. And he is worthy of all of your worship. So as the apostles Paul said, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world but let your mind be transformed and offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual or or literally your logikos act of worship. This is your reasonable act of worship. It makes sense to worship the Lord with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength.
And in 56 days, we will worship Emmanuel, which means God with us. But we shouldn't just do it on Christmas. We should do it with our lives. We should do it with every moment of our lives because he is worthy of it. Amen. Well, I do hope that this message has been an encouragement to you, that you have found yourself empowered and able to better understand what it means that Jesus was God. Because that's really what our faith rests on, is that Jesus was God. And because he was God, he was able to die for our sins. When he came back to life, he liberated us and gave us salvation. So until we're together again, I simply want to say thank you for joining in on this episode of the Beartown Road Alliance Church Podcast. Thank you.